right, man. Welcome to the intro for Crow Triple Seven Radio, episode 62. Jason Lindgren and I are going to pick up a baseball bat, and we're going to beat the hell out of the music industry. The reason we're going to do this is because so many people start to catch on to the things we talk about here, and then they turn around and they idolize some person in entertainment, some rock band, some guitarist, and I'm here to tell you, you might want to rethink that. So many of the systems in our world have been co-opted and corrupted, and at the top of that list, I would submit, is entertainment and music. Now, in the intro here, I'm going to use an example from a band called Supertramp, who put out a very iconic album called Breakfast in America uh, back in the 70s, and I will, before I cover that album, I will mention the album prior to Breakfast in America was called Crime of the Century. There's a reason for this. The reason is, is because they're playing a joke upon you. I guess there was nothing better to do. They are pre-echoing the events that occurred on 9-11 in this album cover and in some of the lyrics of the album 22 years before the event. 22, of course, being the Masonic Master Builder number. For a little backstory, in 78, the English rock band Supertramp recorded an album in Studio B of Village Recorder Studio in Los Angeles, which was formerly, of course, a Masonic temple. The producer on that album's name was Peter Henderson. Mr. Henderson has worked with Paul McCartney, The Beatles, George Martin, Jeff Beck, Frank Zappa. The list goes on and on and on, and you will see these very same names and others constantly reoccurring with the British invasion. Most people were told in school that we fought the British and repelled their invasion. And I'm here to tell you, there have been two British invasions since that we did not repel, at least two that I am aware of them. One of them was the British invasion, starting with the Beatles of the 60s, and they kicked our ass bad, which we will demonstrate in this episode. The second time was the launch of MTV, when all those kind of videos were coupled with music. It was nearly all British acts in the beginning, and the American videos that you can see early on, it almost looks like they took camcorders with monkeys to record the videos, uh, which is a bit ironic because last time I checked, Hollywood is in the United States, but for some reason, uh, the American videos could not hold a candle to the early British videos, which mostly they were. But anyhow, back to Breakfast in America. Go look up on a search engine the album cover for Breakfast in America by Supertramp. Not long after 9-11, many, many people caught on to this. It's no different than the Simpsons pre-echoing or any of the other places we saw, but it's kind of important here to understand that we should not be idolizing the people that made this music. What they did was horrendous. They are making fun of us. It even says so in the lyrics on this album. On the album cover, there's a lady mimicking the Statue of Liberty holding a glass of orange juice. Her name is Libby, of course, mimicking, making fun of the Statue of Liberty, which incidentally is not about our liberty at all. Since we are under a form of British maritime law, you should be informed that liberty has nothing to do with freedom. In a military setting, liberty is something that is granted temporarily. Anyhow, I've covered the Statue of Liberty before. I won't do it again. She is holding a glass of orange juice in front of the Twin Towers. I don't know if people are aware, but orange is the only color in Gematria that reduces to 33. Another Masonic reference, of course. The previous album from this band being Crime of the Century, when this album was released 22 years 
the Master Masonic Builder number again, before the events of 9-11, they were slapping us across the face. They're making fun of us. The release date of this album was March 29. Again, two things here. 29 encodes 9-11 because 9 plus 2 becomes 11, making the 9 into 11. 29 or 92 has always been an encoding method for 9-11, and that is in the release date. It was released in March. March is spring where the vernal equinox occurs and where alchemical procedures, many of them, need to begin. So what's going on here? Anyhow, let's take a look at some of the lyrics really quickly before I jump in with Jason and we do our best to beat the crap out of the music industry. Here's a verse. Take a jumbo across the water. I think we can all agree that it was supposedly jumbo jets that did the damage at 9-11. I don't accept it, but there it is. Take a jumbo across the water. Like to see America. Later in the verse. I'm hoping it's going to come true, but there's not a lot I can do. A new verse. I'm a winner. I'm a sinner. Do you want my autograph? I'm a loser. What a joker. I'm playing my jokes upon you while there's nothing better to do. Couldn't be summed up much better here. How is it that a an album from a British band is pre-echoing the events of 9-11 22 years in advance? I guess we could say this of The Simpsons or any number of movies, Back to the Future, that have done the exact same thing here. But this is kind of a critical thing. These people made the soundtrack to our lives, and we are very easily fooled into worshiping them, and these are the last people in this world that we should pay any respect to. Because after all, they're playing their jokes upon you while there's nothing better to do. And you really need to start to put this into a frame of reference and understand what this means. Think about the freedoms that have been eroded since 9-11. And these jokers playing their jokes upon you are pre-echoing the event, event by 22 years. Just saying. Anyhow, let's pick up a Louisville Slugger. And let's go at music again and hopefully reframe this in a way that allows people to understand these people are not your friends and they should not be your idols. Anyhow, let's jump in with Jason for episode 62 and take another run at the weaponization of music and the actual invasion by Britain of this country, not once, but twice in recent history, starting with the Beatles, then again at MTV. Anyhow, cheers. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio Podcast. This is the well, this is not the intro. Sorry, I haven't done the intro yet. This is episode sixty-two. I have Jason Lingram with me, and we're going to again make a run at the full spectrum programming that has infused modern music. So many people come and make comments and other things where they seem to be catching on to so many aspects of the nonsense that we cover here, and then they go and idolize a rock band. And so we're going to make another run at trying to show people that, in fact, when the powers that be in this world began to buy up important strategic things in this world, entertainment and music were at the top of that list. As a matter of fact, as we have covered so many times here, the Frankfurt School, the Tavistock Institute had already done the research and the fieldwork that created the hippie movement as early as the beginning of that century. And it's documented, not really an arguable thing. But anyhow, uh, Jason, we got a lot to get through. Welcome aboard again. Hello, Crow. And yes, oh my goodness. You know, as, as we were just speaking before we got on air, there's just so much information. I had to start cherry picking just 
so that we can get through a whole show without it being six hours long. There's there's so much information here. As soon as you start looking, you find you find it. It's there. It's documented. Well, it is documented. And part of the problem we had in some of the past shows is people came in and said, oh, you guys cherry picked McGowan's work. Um, and while McGowan clearly did some brilliant work, there were so many aspects of the McGowan work that I have real problems with to the point where I'm almost wondering – uh, if pointing out certain things was deemed okay while icing over things like the death and these other nonsensical things uh, that are so prevalent in all the news in our world. But we've gotten to a point now where – and we're not just concentrating on Laurel Canyon, the kind of beginning of the hippie movement, where there are a lot of other researchers, people who write articles, who have dug into the – basically, let's just put it out on the table – that apparently – the majority of early rock stars and rock music came from fathers who were in the military industrial complex to include spies and other things. I mean, that's a safe statement, right? Yes. So many of them. And not only that, you know, we've covered things before, before we jump into the list here. Let's take, uh, I'll, I'll grab something at random to further demonstrate the complete mind screw and social engineering that music is and always has been in the modern era. Um, let's take something like The Death of Prince, you know, Purple Rain, such an iconic al album. So few people are aware that the first time the public was exposed to the two words Purple Rain was in the 1972 release of, the, of America, the band America, the song called Ventura Highway. That is where we first see the words Purple Rain uttered in a paragraph that is clearly referencing the coming and going of Prince. And when the person who wrote it was asked, why did you use the words Purple Rain? His response was, it beats me. Um, there's just no getting away from it, is there? No. And you do see references like that over and over again. And you, you don't know. You don't know if it was pre-programmed there on purpose, you know? Well, for, for my money, I don't think there's any denying that it is. It's, it's, there, there is a ring of truth in things that we can see that actually exist in a normal way in this world. And when you begin to go at these things, and this is a big problem with so many of the researchers who go at what we're about to cover, is they always hedge their bets, like Paul McCartney as an example. Screw that, man. Paul McCartney we're looking at today is not the Paul McCartney we were looking at in 66. Anyone who has a problem with that, fine, have a problem with it. But there is no ring of truth there. There's shenanigans there. Um, and, I mean, we could say this of many people. How many Michael Jacksons were they, for crying out loud, to the point where even The Simpsons made fun of it in an episode where I've forgotten, I haven't seen it in so long, like a white guy um, from prison or something like this was actually the Michael Jack making the music that we attributed to Michael Jackson. Um, it's it's filled with nonsense. The roots of music are back through Tavistock. They come from the military industrial complex. So let's jump in and draw the picture here. And before we jump in, I will state I'm probably going to use the band Super Tramp's Breakfast in America album in the intro to further illustrate what's been going on, how it ties to masonry. In the case of the Supertramp album, it was recorded at a certain studio that was previously a Masonic temple. And then it ended up being Frank Zappa's recording studio, who will end up recording in, or covering in this episode. But anyhow, uh, there, there's no reason to kick that can any further. I'll, I'll, I'll kick it over to you. We'll start in the list. And again, uh, we will have a segment in the second hour that continues to go through uh, subscriber questions. Oh, and by the way, we're getting the Jungle Surfer for next week. So there it is. Over to you. So we're, what we're talking about really is pop music and social engineering. And what is pop music? It just means popular. 
the the big music of the time. And the earliest wide-ranging pop music was jazz. Jazz formed in New Orleans in the early 1900s. It was based off of a mix of Mississippi riverboat music, black music, and French and Spanish piano music. And this would remain one of the main forms of pop music all the way until probably about the 1950s or so. Uh, although, it, of course, it carries on its own right all the way up to today. Right. I mean, and we have done work to show uh, that, in my view, Robert Johnson, who is constantly cited in the vein that you're kind of addressing here as one of the foundational bluesmen, is nothing more than an alchemical construct. But to the point where recently I saw a television show on KPBS that was going through the roots of early American music, and they actually all but removed Robert Johnson from the uh, – from the dialectic of the show, which I thought was ironic because I don't know about you coming up as a musician and big into music in my early years, I was always told Robert Johnson was like one of the main foundations of Delta blues, which is what, you know, landed itself into the creation of rock and rock music. I mean, where, what did you hear back in the day? No, that's absolutely it. I mean, come on. Like you heard about uh, Robert Johnson all the time because of say Eric Clapton and they even did uh, crossroads back in the cream days. So, right. The, you know, that, and that was in the late sixties. So that you, that, that shows the significance. Now, the little bit I did look into Robert Johnson, he may or may not have been a real person in his own right, but everything about him seems to be an amalgamation of different stories. And the other thing I came across that I'm pretty sure is accurate is that the recordings were altered. The voice was sped up and someone had pulled it back down a little bit. And all of a sudden, it all sounded really natural, like this is probably what the guy really sounded like. So there just seems to be a lot of weirdness about him in general. So he may or may not have been a real person, but there definitely seems to have been some, some odd situations around him if he was. Well, from my view, somebody sat there and made the music. But from my point of view, it is an alchemical construct. Um, I, I think we can show it all day long. As a matter of fact, I think you even sent me uh, on the tale of us talking about alchemy and Robert Johnson. You had sent me, was it a Scorsese quote that said something to the effect of, uh, you know, Robert Johnson's music was great. The only problem is there was no Robert Johnson, something like that. Yeah, there have been other people who theorized that. Well, plus the fact that the music was pulled from other music. So it's hard to say. A lot of these early blues guys were just rehashing the same songs anyway. So, and then I listened to a bunch of the stuff from like the, the 1930s and 20s and all that. And so many of these guys kind of sounded the same. It, it could easily have been pulled off. Right. And it, it just goes to show it's hard to know for sure uh, dates in, in so much of the work we do. But Robert Johnson at what time was being touted as one of the foundational Delta blues guys. And he's a construct. And so why would anyone construct him? Well, for social engineering. And that's what we're going to attempt to go at again to show that all these governmental, um, British, royal, whatever you want to call them, agencies are actually the foundation of all modern music. Absolutely. And the whole Robert Johnson thing may have just been the setup for later stuff. They may have just been laying the groundwork. We, we, we don't really know what they were doing, but... You know, once we start going through this timeline, it's very obvious that the things are being set up way back when. You know, what you just said is the song I'm singing. It, it rings true. It adds up. Um, and, you know, the funny thing is, is as we began to really out Robert Johnson on the tale of the hoax buster clip that gave us the keys we needed to further decode the alchemical usage in all the modern constructs that we take apart, um, 
he started to be removed from the historical timeline. I mean, if you go look now, uh, God, I wish I could remember what's the other bluesman that's now kind of taken his place. Maybe it'll come to me. But anyhow, I'll throw it back over to you um, so we can start to push through this. Right. So all this has to do, of course, with the various intelligence agencies that sprung up over the years. So in the United States, the first officially discussed intelligence service was what was called the Office of Strategic Services that was established by FDR on June 13, 1942. Now, shortly after the war, Harry Truman signed an executive order that dissolved the OSS. In January 46, Truman established the National Intelligence Authority. The National Security Act of 1947 dissolves that and its operational extension known as the Central Intelligence Group and establishes the National Security Council and the Central Intelligence Agency, the one that we still have to today. So it's important to let you keep going because what you're about to demonstrate here is that the National Security Act of 1947 is right in lockstep with the forming of the Tavistock Institute over across the pond. So go ahead. Yep, absolutely. The Tavistock Institute of Human Relations is founded in 1946. It's funded by a grant from the Rockefeller Foundation, and most of its key players were from the field of psychology, and many of them would go on in later years to become very influential figures in those fields. You know, there has been so much work now done on the Tavistock Institute um, that anyone who comes along to write about them, and I see it all the time, where they act like they can't really draw the line that Tavistock is absolutely lock, stock, and barrel and always has been and was formed to do social engineering. The folks that are saying this need to just go away because either they don't have the guts to say what is accurate or they are not getting things. The Tavistock Institute is so intricately locked into the formation of culture in the United States starting, I don't know, roughly the 50s, post-World War II anyhow, um, that it can never be denied. It is documented on almost every level from aliens to rock and roll music to the hippie movement to the age of Aquarius to Greenpeace to, I mean, it goes on and on and on. These are all constructs that were founded, that were funded by Rockefellers, Carnegie and others like this, and they were designed to do one thing to create a false construct. And I'm here to tell you, we are all living in that false construct at this moment until we wake the hell up and recognize the manipulation that's gone on. And that's really what this episode is about as much as it is about popular music. Anyhow, back to you. So in 1948, we have the Rand Corporation being founded. It's an offshoot from the Douglas Aircraft Company, created to act as a think tank for the United States Armed Forces and, of course, the quickly developing military-industrial complex. The, the only thing I'm going to add here is anytime you see the words think tank associated with any top-ranking official organization, you should understand that you're looking at things that are not good for society at large. Go ahead. <laughs> also in 1948, the CIA begins a domestic media manipulation campaign, which would later be called Operation Mockingbird. This involves the buying off of journalists and other such media figures to present the CIA's carefully constructed propaganda as stated facts. They also are said to have funded student and cultural organizations and subvert them for their own means. So what you're seeing here is a date bandied about of 1948, so just after World War II, um, and the CIA is already beginning to ruin universities because they are co-opting them. They are affecting 
cultural and student organizations, and they are already demonstrating that there is no real free press, um, that the newspapers of the time, which were the big media forum, were under their thumb. That's what this bullet point is pointing out. Um, and the reason I think this is critical is because my parents and their parents had a whole other view of what media was in this in this country. They thought it was like the third estate or the fourth estate, whatever they wanted to call it, where there were these journalists out there who would do good work and expose wrongdoing by people in power. And I'm here to tell you it's nonsense. These places have been co-opted and manipulated. And here we have a date of 1948, which really probably is just a random grab. It's no real way to tell how long it's been going on. But anyhow, back over to you, Jason. Next, we have the Aspen Institute that's formed in 1950, primarily funded by such lovely institutions as the Carnegie Corporation, the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, and the Ford Foundation. It is said to work on the development of leadership style for political and social luminaries. To quote, the organization is decreed to be fostering enlightened leadership, the appreciation of timeless ideas and values, and open-minded dialogue on contemporary issues. Some well-known names involved with it are such persons as Madeleine Albright, David Gergen, David Koch, and Condoleezza Rice. Let me translate that for you. When they used the word illuminated, they were talking about the Luciferian ideals. When they talked about people who were leaders, they were talking about places of origin, like Masonic institutions, like people with Jewish lineage. That's what they're talking about here. And it seems an abrupt thing to state that in public, but I'm sorry. At some point, when you count 100 people and all of them have fathers that were spies, or all of them have families that were Jewish, or all of them were in Masonic organizations, it's time to call a spade a spade. What you're looking at is the who's who of the insiders that are going to begin to weave the dream that we all live in. Go ahead, man. Right. So the reason why I'm bringing all these institutions up, and there actually were plenty more, I just kind of stopped there because it, there just was no point in going over and over and over the fact that there's just so many intelligence institutes out there. Because this is the 1940s, and rock and roll hasn't even started yet. We don't get the term rock and roll until 1951 when it's officially coined, in, as far as mainstream history goes, by the Cleveland disc jockey named Alan Freed. Of course, this now starts becoming the predominant sound on the radio and dance clubs, and will take over everything within the next few years. Right. And so as we have covered before, you know, you're pointing out that finally in 1951, the term rock and roll gets coined. Let's back up a little bit. RCA, which was pre-World War II, is openly and documentedly weaponizing all forms of media going into World War II. What most people don't know is that EMI over across the pond owns things like Capitol Records in America. I believe EMI stands for Electronic music industry or something like that. I don't know if I've got that perfectly right, but it's something close. Um, and so EMI's claim to fame is being in bed with, I think it's the British Royal Navy. It's one of the, the military organizations and being in their military electronics branch. And so this harkens into all kinds of areas of the music we're about to cover. As an example, everyone can go look up a an interview uh, that was done by Jimmy Page, the Joker Jimmy Page, uh, who used to be my idol when I was younger because they didn't know any better, where they're asking him about creating the first distortion chamber, or basically the first fuzz box. And he tells a story about how he had a friend in the Admiralty. Okay? 
That's how he gets that distortion chamber. A man in the Admiralty makes it for him. There is the crossover where you see EMI in with the military industrial complex over there, owning such things as capital records. This web goes all over the place, and at every turn, it goes right back to the military industrial complex, the royal overlords, the Tavistock Institute, and all the things we're about to address. So there it is, Matt. Back to you, Jason. Just to give a quick bit on EMI, it stands for Electric and Musical Industries. There you go. It was a British multinational conglomerate founded in March 1931, based out of London. So... Let me actually jump on that. Um, I didn't look up the formation date, which I should have. Uh, you just said March, right? March 1931, yep. So there it is, man. Uh, March is the month where alchemical processes are required to start because it is at the spring or vernal equinox. If you look into how alchemy is done, a lot of it is required to begin in the spring. When you look at so many of the official organizations that we talk about, it's always good practices, Jason just demonstrated, to look up when they were formed. If you see they were formed in March, there's a good chance they're doing the alchemical thing. But anyhow, back to you. So several brutal programs by the CIA come in and go on throughout the next couple decades. Operation Paperclip, which I think everyone's pretty much heard of at this point, saw numerous Nazi scientists being absorbed into the military-industrial complex. That evolves into several other projects, Bluebird in 1949, Naomi in 1950, and Artichoke in 1951. After that comes the big one. All right, before you before you jump into that, I just want to make one comment on, on this uh, bullet point you just made, and that's Bluebird. Um, Bluebird is a big deal. Uh, we did. I didn't really have time to go into it as much as I want because it goes all over the place. But anyone interested can look up the Bluebird of Happiness. This idea was initially in the Frankfurt Schools, the Tavistock Institute. There is even actually a Shirley Temple movie, believe it or not, called Bluebird or something to that effect, where these alchemical kind of mind-warping social engineering ideas that will fade into the hippie movement and the abuse of hallucinogenic drugs intentionally by the powers that be, just go look into Bluebird and see all the places that it comes up. Um, anyhow, go ahead, Jason. So next we have in 1953, the CIA starts experimenting with mind-altering substances, and thus we have the creation of a top-secret behavior modification program called MKUltra. Techniques used on people being psychologically experimented upon include the administration of heavy-duty hallucinogens, hypnosis, shock therapy, and various levels of physical and mental interrogation. So what you're looking at is the scientific groundwork they need to implement the LSD that they're going to introduce to, to wage war on the 1960s counterculture and the beginnings of the hippie movement, which they actually start. Uh, there is nothing organic about the beginning of 60s or late 50s rock and roll. There is nothing organic about the hippie movement. There is nothing organic about drug use. It is all implemented by these people, and it was one of the most effective psychological operations ever uh, from my point of view. I will also point out that early on in some of the research I did in the 60s when they began to hand out the LSD through all the universities and, you know, had musicians like the Beatles pushing the idea that LSD was cool to get people to use it. There are tons of examples of people's whole personalities being changed from a single use. So probably this bullet point is covering how they are dialing in what they are about to bring to bear on the 60s counterculture and music. Right, and the early LSD experiments are said to have been done on willing volunteers. 
The novelist Ken Kesey is said to have been one big name example. Now, the intention was stated to use LSD as a truth serum and a psychological weapon to test the effects they are said to have administered the drug on unwitting subjects later on. This included mental patients, prisoners, foreign nationals, and other private U.S. citizens. There was an eight-year program called Operation Midnight Climax set up in a brothel in San Francisco. The prostitutes there would dose their clients without their knowledge, and the effects would be observed by CIA operatives. And this sort of thing would go on all throughout the 1950s and 1960s. All right, so we'll make a few points here. You mentioned Ken Kesey. Ken Kesey and the Grateful Dead were employees of the FBI. Um, this idea was echoed in a Mel Gibson movie called, I think it was called Conspiracy Theory. I think in that movie, Mel Gibson says that they're working for the CIA, but it's actually documented that the Grateful Dead were employed by the FBI. Uh, there's a proven memo from 1968. They created many deadheads. Get it? They're pushing drugs. They're turning, literally turning people into deadheads. And they helped start drugging the, the early 1960s generation. The dead, the Grateful Dead, were tasked by the FBI with channeling the rebellion of that young generation that truly wanted to make the world a better place into mysticism and drugs. Now, this idea goes on and on, and I'll make a couple more points here. Timothy Leary who was one of the main proponents and pushers of LSD out of the university systems uh, and famous for such quotes as something like, turn on something, tune out. In other words, do drugs and drop out uh, was the main message in that very famous line that Timothy Leary put out. Timothy Leary is an admitted CIA stooge. More than 80 university campuses were used to inject LSD into the American counterculture. So what you're looking at is criminal activity at the highest level. You're looking at at least 80 universities being co-opted in and then having people like Timothy Leary, who were CIA agents or stooges, whichever way you want to look at them, to push LSD out into the American counterculture. In one study that I was reading, it was found that early on, before this was going on, that hallucinogenics had a singular effect of making their users asocial, self-centered, and concerned with objects. This is important because it fell in line with the Tavistock research done near the beginning of that century or the 1900s. So this was the playbook that they used to move forward with LSD to drug the living bejesus out of the generations. And by the way, long hair, sandal-wearing commune idea had been thoroughly tested by the Frankfurt School at the turn of the century. The early music culture was complete and utter social engineering designed to do one thing, to retard, drug out, and change the mindset of an entire generation. And not to put too fine a point on it, I doubt if there's ever been a more successful run um, at a nation than what, what we witnessed in the hippie movement. Anyhow, back to you, Jason. And what's interesting about all of this is we're still just in the 1950s, and look how much crap that they're already doing. You know, we haven't even gotten to the 1960s yet when all the serious stuff really starts going on. Really? I mean, if you think about it, we're not even into the 1950s, and there's already a dream world that has been completely spun and woven, and, you know, bands like the Beatles. You want to worship the Beatles? Really? Really? 
for one thing, the Paul McCartney, who is the only Beatle that anyone cares about left, and actually not a true Beatle, Ringo's probably the only true Beatle left, who knows, um, this band pushed the whole LSD idea. They did their share of the work to get this young generation who wanted to change the world for the better drugged out of their minds and to completely weave a fantasy-based construct. The Beatles were completely complicit in that. Anyhow, back to you. So in 1955, we have Disneyland opening, and of course, the Disney Corporation as a whole will have massive influence in the music and entertainment industry all the way from back then and certainly all the way till today. Right, and we've covered this enough in past episodes. We won't do it again, but uh, what was the number? Do you even remember uh, Disney Corporation? It was in the hundreds of subsidiary entertainment and music corporations that Disney has control over. Oh, yeah, they act as an, uh, an umbrella corporation for a whole mess of them. Right. And if I remember correctly, in the 80s, when we all started to get video cassette tapes and porn for the first time was being injected into the American way of life, if I'm not mistaken, and I'm drawing this from memory, I think Disney actually opened up a subsidiary called Buena Vista so that people wouldn't understand that Disney had anything to do with the porn that was being pushed out on VHS and Betamax. Anyhow, I would have to look that up again to, to be certain. That's actually correct. Right. So there it is, man. Disneyland, the happiest place on earth where you take your kid to meet Mickey is pushing porn from a secret subsidiary corporation called uh, Buena Vista, if I remember that correctly. Go ahead, Jason. So rock and roll begins taking over the entire mainstream airwaves throughout the 1950s. Now, while we have numerous early rock stars emerging, we have the first ever mega pop star in the mid 1950s. Elvis Presley. This is the first time a single personality would reach such a wide-ranging mass of success. Elvis, of course, would remain a huge figure during his entire career, which ended with his death on August 16, 1977. There's even the interesting little bit about how he got drafted and uh, did his due diligence and served for the people. Right. So he went out and played his role to show people that when the government comes calling for you to go kill yourself or possibly be killed for the government at large, uh, you get up and you answer that call. That's why Elvis did that in such a public way. But the, the one thing that strikes me about Elvis is how quickly he was replaced by the British invasion bands. Um, anyhow, I'll let you keep pushing. In 1957, we have the early formations of what's called the free speech movement. It's originally intended to protest the anti-democratic activities of Senator Joseph McCarthy's House on Un-American Activities Committee. This would later go on to inspire the much larger anti-Vietnam War movement of the 1960s. So this is probably a lot of the crux of why people like Tavistock waged war on the young generation of the 60s. Um, a lot of these kids were starting to get to the point where, you know, screw you. You say I'm drafted. I say I'm not. Why do I go to war just because you tell me to? I have no beef with this nation. There was this predominant idea that this baby boomer generation, as they were called and still are, wasn't going to go along with the status quo. So probably this is one of the big, big reasons that this kind of counterculture war was brought to bear on them. What the actual probable intended goal of Tavistock was to take a large number of young baby boomer generations who were actually going to push against the system um, and drug the living shit out of them and turn them into this weird counterculture, which was completely defusing any ability for them to push in the way that they had originally set out to do. Yeah, totally. 
So the early 1960s sees the more R&B and rockabilly aspects of rock and roll music turning into what would be known as the British Invasion style. The guitars got heavier and the vocals got more aggressive, and this starts taking over the center stage of all the pop songs. Right, and I think the the key thing to point out here is the British Invasion literally was a British Invasion, and actually we've had two of them in the music industry. The second British Invasion was MTV, but we'll get to that in another time. So in 1963, we have the Beatles and Beatlemania beginning in the UK. In 1964, we see the real beginnings of the British invasion when the Beatles come to the United States. This would shortly be followed up with other major acts like the Rolling Stones and The Who. So there's a lot of research now that's beginning to show that things like Beatlemania, where supposedly there are thousands of young girls completely wigging out, that a lot of the early things that were demonstrated in media that this was going on were holy staged, where they hired busloads of girls from some school to come in and scream, and there were literally less than 100 of them. But the way the pictures were taken and the way it was handed off, it was meant to make it look like there were thousands of them. And this served two purposes. It fueled the actual Beatlemania, whatever level it actually got to, but it set the stage for the required things they were going to need to have in place to include the Beatles stop touring in 66. Uh, The main reason being cited, they couldn't hear themselves anymore because too many screaming girls made it impossible to hear themselves. So uh, that's just one part of the construct to be aware of. Now, the beginnings of the counterculture movement are beginning to take hold publicly with Longer hair on men, different sorts of clothing beyond the traditional 1950s clean-cut look, and, of course, very strongly hinted at drug use. This all starts becoming the norm, especially amongst the youth. And here's where the bands come to bring to bear what they were put in place for. Um, Of course, even when the Beatles first arrived, there's endless comments about their hair. By our standards today, their hair doesn't look too long. But when they first came, that hair was a whole thing that was shocking people in this country, their long hair. Um, But you see, they're going to do a number of things. They're going to teach people how to look. They're going to teach people how to speak. They're going to fuel the counterculture drug use. They are going to do all these things through the music, which are going to lead a whole generation down the garden path. Back to you. And what this is doing is this is breaking the the stereotype of of the past generations where everyone was super clean cut, you know, the... They all kind of dress the same. It was it was very cookie cutter, but that whole leave it to beaver look is just being decimated by the time you get into the 60s. I never thought I'd hear, hear myself say the words I'm about to say, but what you see them is dismantling the social fiber of, of a nation, basically. And so that sounds so cheesy and cliched, <laughs> but but it's not. I mean, that is the sad part. It's really not. Um, all that moral uprightness that is, you know, depicted in Leave it to Beaver, which isn't really real, but the real part of it that was reflected by my grandparents' generation, that was all about to be dismantled. And people like the Doors and the Beatles and the Who and Frank Zappa and the hippie movement, they were going to be the knife that was thrust to begin to do this. Yep, because we have the Doors forming in Los Angeles in 1965. Lead singer Jim Morrison is the son of Rear Admiral George Stephen Morrison, who commanded naval forces during the Gulf of Tonkin incident in 1964, which, of course, became the pretext for the Vietnam War. So this, <laughs> he's the obvious one that everybody knows about, but he is one of many with these direct ties to the military-industrial complex. 
It's almost to a person. Uh, there, there are, I, I don't know, do I say hundreds where you can show the connection through their father into the military industrial complex. So what are the odds that Admiral George Stephen Morrison, the man who lies to start the Vietnam War, is going to have a son named Jim Morrison who is going to become a famous rock star? Um well, you might be able to say that's coincidence, but by the time you go through enough of these jokers and realize that Steven still – I won't even go down the list – that almost every one of these big early rock stars has a father that is either a spy, military-industrial complex, into the royal circle somehow. And I will further point out, the Doors lifted their name from the Aldous Huxley of Tavistock fame, his book, The Doors of Perception. How many times on this show have has the name Aldous Huxley come up with the social engineering, the nonsense, and the dream world being created that we talk about here? But there it is, man. Jim Morrison's father lied, created a lie to start the Vietnam War successfully, and then brought to bear his son uh, – to wage war on the young generation of the 60s. Absolutely. And of course, as we just said, Jim Morrison is only one of many big rock stars from this era with direct family ties to the military-industrial complex. Here's a short list of others that you almost certainly have heard of. Frank Zappa, John Phillips, Arthur Lee, Peter Tork, David Crosby, Stephen Stills, Jackson Brown, Joni Mitchell, Jimi Hendrix, and Graham Parsons. And I know there's a whole lot more. That was just a, a quick list I put together. But, man, there's just so many of them. Like, I I can totally agree that, you know, of course some people are going to have parents that were in the military. But there's so many big ones that all had this background that it's it's no longer coincidence. It's it's not coincidence. If you were to take a statistician and have them go, and this is just such a small list out of the, the, the names – I went through for the research of this episode. It goes on and on and on. It would be easier to find a person who didn't have a military industrial complex name than it would be to find ones that did because almost all of them did. Um, and in the case of John Phillips and others, they're going to come up later in this episode as having been completely connected in a way that put them in a position to do real harm to the counterculture generation uh, that they formed in America. But anyhow, I'll let you keep pushing through. Uh, we need to get into LSD a little bit here, don't we? Absolutely, because that is the thing that sort of this whole counterculture got wrapped around. And by the uh, early then mid-60s, this became a big thing. And we have what's called the acid tests. And what is that? That's a series of parties that were hosted by the aforementioned author Ken Kesey, as well as his group of followers known as the Merry Pranksters in the San Francisco area. The first one is said to have been at sound engineer Ken Babb's home on November 27, 1965. So it's like 1965. Think about how early that even still is compared to all the music that's going to come out later, you know? Subsequent events were at his farm in La Honda, California. He also had events in public places putting up posters that read, Can You Pass the Acid Test? A band known as the Warlocks, who would very shortly become known as the Grateful Dead, were heavily involved with all of these events. These parties ran from 1965 until 1967. So you can see the early footwork here. We're talking about, you know, winter of 65. The Grateful Dead are about to bring to bear a whole spellcraft 
of nonsense that is going to be the most unhelpful thing that could probably possibly have happened to the young people of this generation. In 65, they're beginning to introduce the acid. They're getting things in place. They have all their research done from a decade or more back, understanding what they're about to do to a buttload of people through universities. And the Grateful Dead and Ken Kesey, who are FBI stooges, employees, are in place here to do what they came to do. Now, in addition to the numerous acid test parties, we also have what's called the TRIPS Festival, a three-day event that ran from January 21st to the 23rd in 1966. 10,000 people are said to have attended this sold-out event. The Grateful Dead played, of course, as well as Big Brother and the Holding Company, the Marbles, Jefferson Airplane, the Charlatans, and the Great Society. The concertgoers imbibed on punch, spiked with LSD, and witnessed one of the first fully developed light shows of all time. And of course, light shows and LSD go hand in hand, don't they? Right. There's no getting away from it. They're building the early portions of the counterculture that are come to bear in, what is it? I think it's 67. Is it 67 Monterey? Um, yep. Monterey Pop Festival is really where uh, the world is about to change. And what you're looking at here is the the stage set being laid out, the, the introduction to what's about to happen being put in place, and bands like the Grateful Dead, Jefferson Airplane, of course, Big Brother and the Holding Company. You've got Janis Joplin, who's a member of the 27 Club. You ever hear that someone is a member of the 27 Club, you should instantly understand what you were looking at. You were looking at encoding and nonsense. That's what you're looking at. Anyhow, keep pushing, Jason. So we start seeing the birth of the hippie movement. And just to give everyone the mainstream definition of a hippie, it's a person of unconventional appearance, typically having long hair and wearing beads, associated with a subculture involving a rejection of conventional values and the taking of drugs, most especially hallucinogens. Right. So um, it, it's a culture that is going to be as unhelpful as any culture could ever be. And they're bringing it to bear. And as I mentioned earlier, the uh, Frankfurt School had already done all the due diligence on this near the turn of the century at 1900. The whole look of long hair, bead wearing, spiritualism, hallucinogenics, they'd already done all the science to understand what they were bringing to bear. Now they just needed their rock stars and their icons to come push it out into the society and make it a thing. Absolutely. Now, the hippie community of the Haight-Ashbury District of San Francisco had an immense role to play in the social engineering of all of this, uh, especially in regards to the drugs. People started living in this area in the early 1960s, and it had its heyday all the way up until 1968 when the area went into a decline, and that's also when you start seeing the whole 60s counterculture thing falling apart. Right. I mean, even look at the naming. We've we've covered so often how the little name games, the word games, the gematria go on. Well, we have hate. Everyone knows what the word hate means. This is just a play on that idea. And Ashbury. Well, you get ash when something is burned up. Basically, what they're doing is burning up the minds of a generation who had so much potential. They're doing it with LSD. They're doing it with a counterculture movement. They're doing it by pushing war, which they will clearly all be against. They're doing it by infiltrating the very universities that are educating the youth. Anyhow, moving into the 67 era. So on January 14, 1967, an event called the Human Being occurred. Considered the prelude to the whole Summer of Love, this event was produced and organized by an artist named Michael Bowen, and it was held in Golden Gate Park. This event solidified the Haight-Ashbury district as the center of the hippie movement and focused the key ideas of the counterculture of the 1960s. Of course, these uh, 
ideals were said to be things such as personal empowerment, culture and political decentralization, communal living, ecological awareness, higher consciousness, of course, through the use of psychedelics, acceptance of illicit, uh, of illicit psychedelic drug use, and radical liberal political consciousness. At this event, rock bands play, playing included Jefferson Airplane, The Grateful Dead, Big Brother and the Holding Company, and Quicksilver Messenger Service. CIA asset Timothy Leary made an appearance and first put out his now famous phrase, turn on, tune in, drop out at this event. Numerous other big counterculture figures were there as well, such as uh, actors and poets. Plenty of LSD was on hand, most especially a particular kind called White Lightning that was produced especially for the event by a man named Owsley Stanley, who was known as the Underground Chemist. The turnout is said some, to be somewhere between 20,000 to 30,000 people throughout the course of the weekend. Hard to know what numbers are numbers, but the things that jump out at me here is, of course, Timothy Leary is finally brought to bear. He's a CIA asset. He's a documented, admitted by his own mouth, CIA asset. Um, and not only that, look at the name of the band, Quicksilver Messenger Service. Basically, that's a play on words. You're looking at Mercury Messenger Service. They're about to bring alchemical ideas to bear. They're going to transmute an entire generation from people with hopes and dreams and aspirations and a desire to change this world for the better and not be a part of violence or war or whatever the hell the government wants. And they're all about to be transmuted into a bunch of drooling idiots because of drugs and rock bands. And I know that's a blunt way to put it, but at the end of the day, that's basically what happened. Yeah, well, it is, unfortunately. So we have 1967 and the Summer of Love. This was a social phenomenon that occurred during the summer of 1967, of course. As many as 100,000 people, predominantly young hippie folks, make their way to the Haight-Ashbury district of San Francisco. Similar hippie and psychedelic gatherings were also occurring in London and in other cities, uh, western countries, of course. The UFO Club, only open from December 1966 until October 1967, was a very well-known gathering for such activities. Uh, Pink Floyd gains huge renown playing there, as well as Jimi Hendrix and Soft Machine. Light shows and poetry readings go on, as well as appearances by avant-garde artist Yoko Ono. You know, I haven't done much looking into Yoko Ono, but is there any way that she isn't a handler of some sort in all this? Um, I, I don't imagine how she could not be. I mean, I even heard recently that she was getting some of the Beatles tracks the credits on them somehow changed to include her name, or I forget what it was. Um, something to that effect. She's trying to get her name put on Imagine. Yeah, something like that. Some bizarre thing. Um, but anyhow, we're about to get into the Monterey Pop Festival. In my view, from the just tons of research I've done uh, on music over the many years now, the Monterey Pop Festival is really the coming out party for the powers that be that are about to declare war on an entire generation. Every band that shows up at this event, every person who's involved with it is an insider doing what they were sent there to do. There's no getting away from it. Anyhow, Jason, take us to Monterey. Yep, Monterey Pop, the first commercial American rock festival. This is another three-day event, and it took place at the Monterey County Fairgrounds in Northern California on June 16th, 17th, and 18th, 1967. Crowd estimates have ranged from 25,000 to 90,000. Big-name acts that played the weekend included, once again, Jefferson Airplane, The Grateful Dead, The Who, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin with Big Brother and the Holding Company, Eric Burden and the Animals, Otis Redding, 
Ravi Shankar, and the Mamas and the Papas, the last of which closed the festival out. And John Phillips has massive ties to lots of other crazy stuff. And John Phillips is a bad, bad man. Um, he is so implicitly linked to the Monterey Pop Festival. But think back to his daughter. Um, I've forgotten her name. She was on a TV show in America called One Day at a Time. Not too, too many years ago, there was this whole incense nonsense that was pushed into the media to make Americans feel bad once again about things. Um, and that was his daughter. This man has been involved. Well, just let me go down some of the points here that I wrote down for the Monterey Pop Festival. In my view, the War on Culture by Tavistock was officially launched at the Monterey Pop Fest. Young people there were exposed to these drugs, STP, PCP, MDA, DMT, and LSD. There was even special brands of LSD, one of them actually being called Purple Haze. Anyone recognize those words? Um, and of course, bands like the, Beatle and the Beatles and the Grateful Dead were pushing the idea of hallucinogenic drug use. And for anyone out there who still thinks that these kind of chemically created drugs can in some way expand your mind, think again. The human brain doesn't need crap like this put into it. And when these drugs were manufactured, the last thing on the chemist's mind was the idea that they were going to expand anyone's mind. Far from it. Anyhow, hallucinogenic drugs are what's called psychomimetic, which are designed to mimic an aspect of psychosis. So that's what they're doing here. And as I stated before, many of the early users um, experience, experience complete personality changes. Now, this may differ from what people experience later who have done drugs like this, but we're looking at the launch of a war against a generation here. As a matter of fact, the later MTV launch has been shown to use the early drug psychological operations in its marketing when it launched later to include songs that were from the psychedelic era some 15 to 25 years prior, which was meant to re-trigger mental aspects of the now adult population back into the second British invasion, which was MTV. Lastly, it has been shown that two people headed the festival at Monterey, some unknown guy from Florida called Peter Goodrich, and a legendary CIA agent named the Coyote. Also, John Phillips of the Mama and Papas, who actually, incidentally, used to be, before this, a press agent for the Beatles. He was also linked to Roman Polanski, Sharon Tate, Mama Cass, Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys, all of which were, were linked and related to, in one shape or form, Charles Manson, who would later do the false flag Manson murder nonsense. Anyhow, back to you, Jason. So this whole drug-induced culture, this is now absolutely the norm after 1967, and this is the rest of the 60s. 1968, we see the assassinations of Martin Luther King on April 4th, then uh, Robert Kennedy on June 6th. The MLK shooting leads to the Chicago riots. So we see more social engineering and mass upset going on because of all these events. Right. Likely planned events, likely false flags, and they're using the Tavistock playbook here to jerk people into fear and then jerk them out of it. That's what events like this do. And on top of it, they had a whole generation that was high as a kite on hallucinogenic and other type drugs. Um, go ahead, Jason. 
So we get to 1969, we have a lot of interesting things. The moon landings, of course, being one of the big ones. We see the end of the Beatles, along with the beginning of the Paul is Dead theory. And, of course, we have Woodstock and the Manson murders. So we've covered this here before. I call it the trifecta. You know, you basically have the fraudulent moon landing. And then to get your eye off that, you have the false flag fraudulent Manson murders. And then to get your eye off that, we go over to Woodstock, which is a music festival that didn't happen at Woodstock at all. As a matter of fact, it was moved to a place called White Lake, then to a place called Wall Killer. Maybe I have that backwards. And as I began to take apart the documentary it is claimed to be a documentary film about woodstock i found inconsistency after inconsistency you know infinitum and then people like jungle surfer were covering the problems with it these are the social engineering of our times and as far as i can tell moon manson woodstock may have been one of the biggest kickoffs for false news in modern history back to you jason yeah, now Charles Manson, he has direct ties with Mama Cass and John Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas through something called the Process Church of Final Judgment. This church was an offshoot of the Church of Scientology, and it was formed in the mid-1960s by a couple of former Scientologists. This oddball church had as its belief system a mix of reincarnation, existentialism, an attempt to merge Jehovah and Lucifer, and neo-Nazism. Now, the even weirder part is the church's legal matters were dealt with by an elite Wall Street law firm called Morris and McVeigh. That uh, law firm's main backer was the American Family Foundation, in an organization who used intelligence operative Dr. Lewis Jollyan West in their affairs. Dr. West, if you're not familiar with him, was a major player in the, with the CIA and the MK Ultra program. So here you go. All these things completely tied together. There it is, man. Um, you've got MKUltra. They're, they're not content to just drug out people to make this bogus counterculture, which is damaging uh, American society in ways that will never, never be completely explained. They're also screwing with the spiritual aspects of an entire generation, and this is proof of that. And it's actually by people who are going to be part of MKUltra. And this, of course, all relates to the early experimentation with hallucinogenic drugs, what they could do to groups of people. It goes on and on and on. The main point here is that there is no aspect of this counterculture that did not get screwed with to include spirituality. Anyhow, Jason? So to kind of kill off the remainder of the 60s, we have the Rolling Stones concert at Altamont on December 6, 1969. This was a free counterculture rock concert uh, held in northwestern California. But of course, it's the event is best known for considerable violence, including the death of a black man named Meredith Hunter, and three accidental deaths, two caused by a hit-and-run car accident and one by drowning in an irrigation canal. And uh, numerous injuries were reported, numerous cars were stolen. It, it was just a big old, old mess, and it pretty much signaled, hey, this happy, colorful, wonderful 60s is over. Right, and it was planned to be that, in my view. When you look at the media coverage of what Altamont was, what we find is that it was planned to be what it was. Um, the deaths there, uh, while I can never say certainly, are likely false flag pre-planned. Um, even the astrology or the alchemy of the whole thing is done. I've forgotten now whether the the moon was supposedly in, in Scorpio or something like this, a bad sign by alchemical standards. This whole thing was planned to be the death 
of the free love generation. And that really starts to hearken in what the 70s are going to become. And let me tell you something. When you compare the 1970s in America to the 1950s in America, what you see is night and day. And the people who did it are these rock bands, the handlers that created them, the military-industrial complex, the 80-plus universities that manufactured drugs and gave it to the children of that generation, and every other aspect of the completely constructed counterculture generation that has left us with the world we live in now. And that seems like a sweeping statement, but I make no apology. Absolutely. And it seems that the gruesome events of 1968 and 69 led to a massive change in overall social views because it's quite apparent uh, the change in multimedia entertainment from the 60s and the 70s is extremely stark and noticeable. And I've brought this up before, and I even showed it to a friend of mine last night, like watching some of the original Star Trek or I Dream of Genie and all that. You see the production is very bright and colorful and everything sounds and looks good and all that. Jump ahead a very few short years and all of a sudden everything is gritty and dark and man, it's a, it had to have been on purpose. There's just no doubt of it. Yeah, of course it is. And what's what I've always really noticed is how is it that our culture is defined by decades? So it becomes 1980 and it's no longer the 70s anymore. Why is that some special line in the sand where this whole other thing is going to happen now? This whole other look, a whole other sound of music. It's because it's all constructed. That is why. There are no bands out there that just happen to get lucky. And this is my view and become big, famous, and sway the world with their great music. That is not the way this works. The way this works is that there are military-industrial complex bands that end up being big. There are family bloodlines. There are royalty. There are Jewishness. There are all number of things that almost to a person are brought to bear on anyone you look at that's a big deal in music. And in my view, this is why when it becomes 1990, guess what? The music of the 80s is now going to be something different. The look, everything is because it is all constructed by the powers that be. Anyhow, back to you. The, obviously, the intelligence agencies have gotten the hang of this because as you start going through the 70s, you see other forms of pop music emerging. You have punk rock, you have metal, and all these sort of things, and these grow and branch out and kind of do their own thing. And the reasoning behind this, I can only assume, is so that you really can have a giant net to get everybody in. Because if you may not like one kind of music, you're certainly going to like this other kind, so they've got something for you. Yeah, there's no doubt. And even if you look at the basis, like I was sucked into the whole punk rock thing. I was in a punk rock band in the 70s, believe it or not. But when you break the music down, you break it down all the way back to the roots of blues, don't you? It's almost like we could have infinite kinds of music we listen to. But for some reason, the basis of almost all pop music has its roots in a common place. And to most people, this doesn't seem like a big deal. But when you really begin to break down, why is it that we don't have endless varieties of music with roots that don't relate to any other roots? The reason is, is because it's all controlled, man, all of it. Yeah, it has to be because the uh, the Sex Pistols, you know, the pretty much the biggest name in punk rock, well, they were on a very major record label. And if you listen to that album today, it still holds up pretty well because the production on it was very, very good, in fact. I hear it all the time at, at my right. job, in fact. And it always stands out to me that, hey, this album still sounds good to this day. It doesn't sound dated. Um, it just sounds like good, straightforward rock music as far as the production techniques that were used. 
And there it is. There's the band that put out the 45, which we got our hands on in America before it was released, because one of the guys in my band had a girlfriend who was a manager at a record store. We got our hands on the 45 of God Save the Queen. The problem with the Sex Pistols is we're told only one guy knew how to play his instrument, a guitarist a guitarist who doesn't really want to be interviewed too much anymore. And yet, as Jason stated, that album holds up. You want to know why? Because it is a construct. Construct. There is no organic anything about the punk rock movement. And unfortunately, I was one of the people fooled. I thought I was in this cool new movement back at the time. That's just not the case. Um, anyone who wants to take apart a thing that's easily taken apart, look at what we're told about the Sex Pistols. Look at what we're told about the musicability of the Sex Pistols. Sid Vicious couldn't even play his instrument for crying out loud. And then go listen to the one album that changed everything, which was the Sex Pistols, Never Mind the Bullocks. Um, anyhow. Jason. Right. And of course, the, the punk movement in general was meant to be uh, anti-society, you know, a against everything mainstream. And it's ironic because it was the most controlled thing at the time, wasn't it? Yeah, ironically, you know, all these punks were walking around wearing safety pins. I did it too. It's a bit ironic looking back on it now. And of course, then we have heavy metal coming out of the late 1970s, bands like Iron Maiden and all them. And that spearheads into its own thing. And nowadays, there's so many branches of metal, I don't even know the difference of them. Uh, maybe I'm just old, who knows. But they've got something for everybody is kind of what I'm getting at. And of course, at the heart of it all, they these people know what they're doing. They're controlling it. These major record labels shift things in the direction that they want and need them to go to have the social effects that they want. That's right. And they're ramping it up all the time. And the main goal is to give society a lower mind. It is the animals in animal form. It is the sheep in the book animal form. That is their goal. When you look at things like death metal or rap music, the way these things are put together, constructed and produced are not helpful for your mind. They are designed to not be helpful for your mind. And this doesn't excuse any other forms of music here. I'm just pointing out some pretty obvious ones anyone can take to look at. In terms of rap, you have these very repetitive beats and rhyming. This is the basis of lesser magic spells, friends and family who may be listening to this. That's what's being brought to bear here. In terms of death metal, well, anyone can go listen to it. Does that seem like a healthy thing to you? Listen to it. And I know a lot of people who may be into death metal out there will say, hey, man, don't badmouth my music. Sorry, man, I'm pointing out what's true here. And it's no different than rock and roll. It's no different than disco was. It's just that they have never stopped ramping up the end goal of all popular music in this world, which is to lower the mind, the entire mind of a world through an alchemical process meant to transmute us into stupid monkeys. That's basically their goal. But anyhow, Jason, we've come by the top of the hour. Uh, do we have anything more to get through here? We've got a couple more decades that we can kind of round off in the second hour if you want to join us there. But I think that we made the point about how controlled music has always been in, in the modern era. There's just no... There's no arguing it. No, there is no arguing it. We should rewrite the, the lyrics from the song Rolling Stone. Um, it's all designed to blow your mind. And guess what? Your damn mind was blown. There's an accurate rewriting of the song from Dr. Hook cover of the Rolling Stone. This is maybe one of the most 
successful psychological operations that a person can look at. What was done to an entire generation, and not just in America, all over this world. As a matter of fact, there's endless TV shows on now trying to demonstrate how the Beatles were a big deal in Russia and helped destroy communism. These things are all a construct. But anyhow, in the second hour, we're going to talk a little bit more about the nonsense and control that has been rock and roll and popular music. But we also still have quite a list of subscriber questions that have been submitted. And for many, that has become one of the favorite parts of, of the episode that Jason and I do. Anyhow, Jason, is there anything more you want to add before we bring the first hour to a close? Well, I'd like to say since everyone is a music fan in some way, shape or form, as always, don't take our word for it. Go look this stuff up and just know it's great to appreciate the music, but definitely understand what's behind it. It's one thing to listen to music nostalgically, which was what it was intended to do to you, by the way. It's another thing to worship it, to worship the people who did it, to think it has value beyond the fact that it is entertaining you. It's what it's doing. The word entertainment means to go in and hold your mind. That's what it means, and that's what this did. Unfortunately, it did a bit more than that because the people who brought it to bear had some pretty bad intentions, and we've demonstrated a lot of those bad intentions. I still enjoy music all the time. I still play guitar, probably not as much as Jason does, but I have come to understand what the intentions of things were here. I do not worship Jimmy Page like I once did because I understand what he was a part of and what they were doing to a world generation at any at any rate. That brings the the end of the, the top of the first hour. Uh, we're going to come back, and a big part of the second hour is going to be subscriber questions. And again, it has become wildly popular and one of the favorite segments that we do. So there it is, man. That's the end of the first hour for episode 62, Crow 777 Radio. Just once again, trying to point out what a fraud um, the idea of worshiping rock stars is when you begin to look at truly what it's all about. Cheers. <laughs> 